Hey, everybody. Luke Thomas here on, uh, let's see, 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th. I guess today's the 10th. Yeah, Monday, August 10th, 2015. This is the Monday Morning Analyst. Um, not a big podcast today. There wasn't a whole lot going on over the weekend. So we're really only, only going to take a look at a few fights from the UFC Fight Night 37 card, which was uh, Glover Teixeira versus Ovin St. Pru. I know there was a glory event as well, um, but uh, my DVR didn't catch it for whatever reason. I guess because they changed the times. It used to be at 9, now it's 11. I, I'm not sure why I didn't catch it. Whatever the case, um, the interesting part was the main event was a repeat from the contender tournament that I was the last glory show that I worked at from February, I want to say, the one in Hampton, Virginia. Uh, that was a blowout, but as I understand it, this one was uh, much closer and was sort of stopped. Um, uh, it was stopped early because of a cut, but be that as it may, uh, but was much more competitive. Uh, in any event, this podcast has three parts. Uh, first part, big overview. Second part, a review of the technical action. And then three, a look ahead. So um, let's go with the first part. Now, the first part I'm going to do, part one, is a little bit separate and unrelated to what we saw over the weekend because there wasn't Again, it was just a small event. It wasn't a big narrative to things. There wasn't a lot of monumental shifts um, as it relates to technique. But I tell you what did happen on um, Sunday, yesterday. I attended a Gary Tonin seminar um, on leg locks. Wow. Boy, what an eye-opener that was. Uh, you guys know if you watch this podcast, um, I'm a big fan of grappling. But I don't personally have a lot of experience with leg locks. It's not been a big part of my game. Um, and not that one seminar changes that, but at least it was, it, it was so good and it was so informative and it was so clinical in the way in which the information was described that I feel much better now, um, about a lot of things, you know, I, you know, MMA jujitsu or jujitsu, jujitsu that you see in MMA, you know, a mount is is not a complicated thing. You know, you teach mounts to white belts. You teach mount blue belts practice it and so forth. But the guys who hold mount at black belt, they hold it at a, you know, it's just mount. It's things that white belts know how to do. But when you get to the black belt level, the, the level of that mount, the difficulty in escaping that mount becomes enormous. And so um, and so I guess what I'm just sort of trying to point out is there we, we didn't, there were some sophisticated things. But it was more just conceptually what everything is based around. Um, and sort of one of the bigger takeaways that I had, and I'll wrap this up here real quickly. I was supposed to have five minutes on the clock for this, but I didn't do it because I'm a dumbass. Um, one of the bigger takeaways I had was if you had asked me previously about the toe hold versus the heel hook, I would have said that these are obviously, you know, there's a Venn diagram, there's an overlap there, of course, no, no doubt about it. But that ultimately, these were submissions that were doing different things. I mean, obviously, the application of them is different. Toe holds are legal in IBJJF competitions, heel hooks are not. Um, and so, if there's, if, if that kind of thing is allowed, there must be a big difference between them. But in the way that um, Tonin teaches them, they're really not much different. I mean, yes, the application is what you always looks like. I don't mean that he has some novel way of latching it on, but in the application of finishing it, it's not entirely different. You see, you see a lot of jujitsu and MMA that is very, very basic. You know, you don't need to know. Again, it can be done by Demi and Maya at a very, very you know, the, it's a basic technique done at a high level. 
but it's still a basic technique. And so I just feel a lot more confident about um, some of the things that were lagging in my brain about some of the techniques that I, w- I didn't quite understand. It should be noted that, you know, obviously Paul Harris has issues about holding on to submissions too long, but in terms of the novelty and the ability he has as a leg lock artist, he got referenced several times for all the things technically he does well. Now, of course, there's another issue about all, you know, eye gouging and holding on to submissions too long and this, that, and the other, not dismissing any of that, not ignoring any of that, just noting that some of his setups, some of his attacks, some of his finishes, you know, they're really, they're, they're, they're very, very strong. And they're very strong for some, some important reasons. But for me, the big one was the heel hook and the toe hold being very closely related. A lot of people like to put the heel hook, switch for a normal heel hook, and they like to, in MMA, you see it all the time. They'll latch on and they'll like rip it across their body, which uh, I knew wasn't right, but I didn't quite know some of the finer points, obviously, that, that uh, Tonin knows. And he shared some of the finer details of finishing, finishing from transitions, inverted versus uh, standard finishes from different ones where you have the 50-50, where you have two legs on the outside, where you're circling back into them to to off-balance. I mean, all kinds of different uh, ways. But to me, the big one was how close... Before, I thought heel hook and toe hold were like slightly overlapping. They are hugely overlapping. There's obviously some differences, of course, but they're not nearly what people think they are. It's not nearly as different. Um, in the way in which you finish, which I won't get into here. I'll wait until we actually see some toe holds and some heel hooks in MMA. We actually saw one in one of the first fights, or actually one of the fights we're going to talk about today, and I'll explain some things that why it didn't work. Of course, I think it was from Ray Bork. I think he knew it wasn't going to work, but be that as it may. So anyway, a uh, really informative seminar. If you train out there and you get a chance to go to a Gary Tonin seminar, can't recommend it enough. Did two hours of technique and then stayed around and answered questions until the questions were done, then rolled with whoever wanted to roll. Um, you know, so it was, it was phenomenal. It was well worth your money, really informative, good for MMA, good for no gi, good for gi, uh, all kinds of good stuff there from Gary Tonin. So very, very helpful. Um, like I said, no big arching overview, but important nevertheless. Okay. So let's put some time on the clock. Let's do this. Part two. Just one event we're going to get to today. Not, not a big podcast. Um, UFC Fight Night 73, Glover Teixeira versus Ovin St. Preux. Um, this took place at the Bridgestone Arena, Nashville, Tennessee. Had an attendance of 7,539, an announced attendance anyway, uh, for a gate of $454,000. Well, excuse me, I should say $454,551. A um, little bit le- under half a million, which is not a lot, but I can't imagine that the payouts were a lot for this card either. Uh, okay, so the card was headlined by Glover Teixeira and Ovin St. Preux, an important light heavyweight contest. Um, let's look at the main card. There were obviously some important fights on the prelim card, most notably Uriah Hall and so forth. Uh, who's The guy whose wife's last name remains... A constant struggle for me, but whatever the case. Um, but I want to focus in on that main card because the, the, with the exception of the Uriah Hall fight and I guess Dustin Ortiz and Willie Gates, um, not a lot to, to, to pay attention to um, below the main card. So we'll start at the top and we'll work our way down. Glover Teixeira defeats Ovin St. Preux, technical submission via rear naked choke at 310 of the third round. Um, this was an interesting fight, I thought, because I, I had thought that... Um, St. Preux could do a little bit more 
than he had shown us previously. And and to some extent, he fulfilled that. I thought some of his wrestling scrambles were better. I thought it was simply just more a choice of offense that really did him in. And also, you know, Glover Teixeira is veteran savvy. But anyway, so the, so the fight starts, and the basic overview is that Teixeira really had some good moments defensively and grappling. He had some strong moments in striking, but could never really string offense together long enough to make it matter. But there were high points on both sides. So in the first round, I thought Teixeira did a good job of using OSP's weapons against him early on in the fight, and then really throughout it, um, but particularly in the first two rounds, when St. Prue would go to a body kick or a leg kick of some kind, um, Teixeira would catch it and run the pipe, right? So you're driving your shoulder into it, you have your hands beneath the knee, you drop them to the ankle as you drive the shoulder and you step out and turn, right? So you're driving them down with your shoulder, pressing into them uh, to the same side as the leg, basically, while you circle out. So that was a good job by uh, to share a good good technique the whole bit, but just smart to like you're gonna kick me, you're gonna pay for it, you know, and and, and establish that frankly almost like from the first striking exchange, which is why OSP's continued use of it was a little bit puzzling, but okay. Uh, so OSP must be strong as hell. There was a moment where he got taken down, and Tashera was past him. Somehow he found a way to stiff arm, and then go to knee shield. Knee shield is half guard, but you're not locking down necessarily in half guard. You have one of your bottom legs just on front of their hip. And then they're like probably somewhere around the shoulder, more or less. And you got a frame there. And he then uses that to push on his hips to get his, well, pushes on to share his hips to get his own hips away, which is, which is not uncommon necessarily. But for a big guy like that to go, the distance he traveled was really big. And then he did, if you recall from the Conor McGregor breakdown, he did a technical stand up. Remember, right? Same stuff. So you have your left foot down, you have your left hand out. You put your right hand on the mat, and then the right leg comes out, right? But you keep your hand up the whole time, and you, obviously you can switch sides depending which way you want to do it. Um, but that he does a technical stand-up, and then manages to back his hips away and get out from behind um, Glover Teixeira. That was, like, very impressive because it was technical, yes, but that's something you see at the smaller weight classes where guys create space and they can scramble quickly. For a guy who's 6'4", you know, probably walks around naturally 240, 250, um, that's a that's – a, very difficult thing to do the way he did it. So he was, he must be very, very strong technical too. understand, but you know, just to get that amount of force to get, you know, black, belt like lever to share off of you is, is not easy. Um, there was a brief moment in time where there was a groin kick to, to but it was nothing serious. The fights restarted. Uh, and I thought OSP did a really good job of directing to into him. So he, he steps out to his right a few times. And if you watch to in slow motion, he never takes a sidestep. I mean, he might angle a step off, but he doesn't do any lateral stepping. Basically, he just marches forward every time, and, to, and OSP kind of sees this. So he steps out to his right, then steps to his left, gets a short turn. Teixeira gets a short turn, but forward to Teixeira's own right. So as OSP's coming this way, Teixeira's following him. OSP's coming this way, gets another turn this way, which allows OSP to take a big step out with his right foot on the outside of Teixeira's lead foot and then, bang, fire the body kick up the middle. So he steps out, comes back, sees the angles there, steps out again, and then whack, hits him with the body kick. Really, really nice job by OSP there. It was things like that where I can see why he'd be tempted to use that offense, and it worked there pretty well. I mean, there was a moment there where later on you can see uh, the ribs of Teixeira, and they were like, bruised really badly but um but um so i i I can see why he was tempted but i think he just went to the well one too many times anyway so this causes like a bit of a scramble and 
um, to share is trying to uh, do a crackdown and then, and uh, we can't get it. And then, so what happens when their OSP goes? See. So the, eventually they, he gets back to his feet and they separate OSP hits another um, body kick, but again, to share catches it and use it to go to a single into mount. And it was interesting because if you saw where he caught the single, he didn't catch it up by the knee. He kind of caught it just by the foot. So he was barely able to, to run the pipe and get it. It was very, very narrow. But what happened was, the good thing was, when he actually hit it and OSP fell, remember I talked about it last week, one of the things about being long and lanky is, you know, you, you can push off someone like you saw with a knee shield or you can do other things. Um, but once you get extended, it's a lot easier to get past because it's just, it's just a longer amount of space that has to get retracted. So when he got caught at the end of the kick and then ran the pipe, his legs were kind of already extended. And so Teixeira just basically almost hops right into mount um, because of that. So that it, it was the, the takedown was iffy, but because he caught it in an iffy position, it was actually great for the mount. That was kind of interesting. Um, and let's see, OSP is able to eventually escape and get back uh, by getting his shoulders separated from Glover and turning him into behind the elbow. So he gets to mount, and then it turns like uh, almost, almost on his back. But if you notice... Teixeira's chest is not glued to OSP's back. There's actually a bit of space, as you can see, Teixeira threatening one way um, to, to, like, you know, to, like, buck off. And eventually what happens is he sits up and then squeezes behind. You can see him actually get underneath the elbow of um, Teixeira and then turns into him, right? So, I mean, one of the ways you want to escape mount, if, I mean, there's a lot of different ways you could do it, but one of them is, or if someone's on your back, that is, you create an angle and then get your shoulders to the mat and roll. Now you might get mounted, but then you can get, you know, if you're good, you can get your knee in between and, um, or, you know, depending on how loose they are with their positioning, you can scramble out. But that was what he did. He kind of threatened to get his shoulders down and like threatening, threatening, threatening. And then when, uh, he saw Tashira was like a little bit nervous about positioning, sat up, scooted behind the elbow and then came back in front, which was, which was really good. Um, round two, not a lot of action that happened. Glover eventually got back to OSP into the fence. And you could see that was funny because they, they did some exchanging at first, but you could see that OSP was really kind of concerned with Glover's striking because, number one, he was his back was against the fence, so his, his mobility was really limited. But I think more than that, um, you know, Glover didn't throw a lot of kicks himself, was really kind of relying on his boxing, had him in boxing range. But by the time, you know, he had thrown a bunch of combos and he had walked him down, he had backed him up. You could see OSP was a little bit tired from the first round. I think the big takeaway for me was when he eventually got the big takedown that like, put him in – top position for the most of the round um to share didn't even throw a strike right he kind of just fainted osp went like this went in on it like it, no, not a single punch was thrown in that particular moment to set up that takedown which i kind of thought was you know illuminating how concerned osp was about the kind of punching that he was receiving in those positions from glover to share that he didn't you know it didn't a punch wasn't even required um and also one thing shows notes about glover to he gets the takedown. He likes to pass the half guard if he can, or mount if it's there, but usually half guard. And he immediately wraps the head every time. I really, I really like that about Glover to share. What I tell you, man, if someone's wrapping your head standing or if someone's wrapping your head on the ground, if your neck and your shoulders are controlled, it almost does not matter what your hips are doing. Not, not totally. Um, you know, obviously you want to be inside to really solidify that, to get the mount, you get the idea. But um, it, the more this is controlled, the more you can't do anything to, about it. Um, and so I, I like how it, the second that Teixeira gets him down, whoop, always wrapping the head, always. Really like that. And, and 
you know, if you're OSP, once you got taken down, you got to be looking for that cross face and he never to block the cross face and he never did. And then round three, by that point, I thought the writing was kind of on the wall. OSP shoots to share a stops and gets double underhooks, but instead of just stopping him and backing him up, takes a step out, throws the near side arm by him over the head and then gets behind him with a body lock. That was really nice and did it kind of fluidly too, you know, stops it and then threw him by, gets the body lock. That was cool. Uh, he gets taken down. And so eventually, you know, he passes him out and then gets to the back. The key for to share that you want to notice, and I'll, I only bring this up because not a lot of people do it, and I don't know why, but you're supposed to, especially in MMA. Not so much in jiu-jitsu necessarily, especially if someone has a gi because you can switch you can switch um, to different kinds of attacks when you have the gi. And frankly, most people don't finish rear naked chokes in with a gi. Um it's mostly a lapel choke because it's just easier to get a lapel choke and they're devastating. But, uh, so to share is banging on him from Mount OSP turns banging on him from, from back Mount. And, uh, but OSP is covering up for the most part. OSP tries to stand to get out. So what does he do? He puts his right hand down first. That is the side that to attacks immediately to is waiting to see which hand is going to plant on the mat first. Or if you go both hands, you know, you can just pick at that point. But he goes, a lot of people, because of the weight on someone, they'll go one hand first to like kind of like, you know, uh, inch their way up. And the right hand plants first. So that's the side that Teixeira wraps. Um, and, uh, yeah, that was it. I really sort of enjoyed that. The fact that some some guys, even if the person plants on the right, they'll just sink the hand that they like sinking the most. But you want to do it on the same side because they can't hand fight. They've placed all their weight down on their hand. They, if they're leaving it open. I mean, even if their chin is tucked, you can still, especially in the man, you can punch them, you can lift the chin, you can do a lot of things to slide the hand under, which he did very much. Uh, oh, by the way, one note, remember how everyone was like getting on Ken Shamrock, and I did too. Now, his hand was really low, but you could see like Glover Teixeira must be like ox strong because he couldn't get his own top hand uh, too much above the forehead of OSP. But OSP was so hurt and so almost out of it. By the time he went to go grab it, he couldn't really do it. I mean, he, he could get a hand on it, but he couldn't actually peel it off of him. Um, a testament to, to, to share a strength and, you know, squeeze in that position. Uh, okay. In the co-main event, Benil Darius defeats uh, Michael Johnson via split decision 29-28 across the board. Excuse me. Split decision. So 29-28, 28-29. And then 29-28. I had it 29-28 for um, Michael Johnson. I thought this was a bad decision that he had to suffer from. Uh, I don't want to go too much into this one because it was uh, – let me just say a couple things about it generally. I thought Michael Johnson's movement up until the third round was phenomenal. I thought he did a really, really good job. In the second round, you need to go back and watch all the cage cutting he did. He had Dariush behind those two black lines for a huge majority of that round. Really, really good job. It was a close round because of the the way in which the striking panned out. But to me, that difference in the cage cutting makes the difference in the scoring. A phenomenal job. And if you compare the cage cutting in round two to the cage cutting in round three, it's not even close. It's not just that Dariush, and I'll get to some of these adjustments in a minute, Dariush did make some striking adjustments. Um, in terms of where he angled himself and what he angled himself off of after he threw. But it's also true that Johnson, and to, to us, and, you know, both guys get credit and blame. 
Johnson didn't do as much cage cutting, and Darius did a better job angling. But what it created for was Darius was under much less pressure by the third round. But by the first round, I thought, you know, I really, uh, I thought Johnson's cage cutting was phenomenal. I thought his movement was phenomenal. The mechanics of his punching sometimes throw me off a little bit because it seems like he's almost like whipping a, a, a baseball rather than these direct straight shots. But he seemed to be very effective. His takedown defense was phenomenal, instinctual, um, both because he's so athletic to get down to the shoulders to get space and also because of his distance management. I thought that was kind of incredible as well. Um, there was a moment where Darius didn't reset an angle and he went in for a jab and he got jabbed. So, like, they're at this distance and it's like 50-50 basically. And what happens is that Johnson shifts to his left Darius doesn't adjust, and so when he jabs and misses and then tries to retract, he's still in line to get tagged. He got hit with the left. That was the left that dropped him. So when so when they're together and you're 50-50, it's whoever just fires first, whoever is more accurate. But then Johnson shifted to his left. Darius didn't respond, came in with a jab, but he realized, oh, God, I'm in the, the mouth of the alligator, tries to back out, and gets clipped. That was a really nice job by Michael Johnson. Um and you saw in the first round after that, and in the second round to a lesser extent, Johnson had a lot of success replicating that effect, shifting to his left to change the angle on Darius, particularly as he was keying off of the jab. Uh, there's a lot of that going on. I was really impressed by that. Um, you could also see Johnson jabbing his way to push Darius into certain directions. Sometimes he would just jab body. Sometimes he would jab uh, head. Sometimes he would shift and jab to head. Sometimes he would... Um, he would take a big step out and like fire a jab, like kind of hook to move Darius to get Darius to go defensively to his left. And then he would fire the left on top. It without, there was a, there was ways he was adjusting. So moving his feet, moving his body, changing the angle, changing the variety of the punch, and then changing the kind of punch to direct Darius into the, to the shot. This is what I'm talking about when I talk about elite striking. Again, the mechanics of Johnson's punches sometimes are a little bit weird to me because of um, just how they look. But again, the effectiveness you, you can't really argue with. And more than that, look at how many factors are in play with proper striking. Like everyone calls, you know, grappling a chess game, and it is. I don't see how striking is any less of a, ch- a chess game, particularly at this level. Your feet got to be moving. Your angles have to be right. Your distance has to be right. All these things take a long time to learn and to practice and to get good at. The kind of punches you throw, the kind of sequence you throw them in, the kind of timing you throw them in, in which the sequence happens. All of these things contribute to meaningful striking. Um, and how you counter and how you place yourself on the counter. You know, I, I really feel like if you're going to call grappling a chess game, you should call you know elite striking like this a chess game as well. Uh, I mentioned in t- round two the phenomenal cage cutting that, that that Johnson did, which for me is the clear difference in who wins that round. Round three, I thought Darius had a lot of success. Darius adjusted to that thing I mentioned at the top, where Johnson would shift to his left to set the angle. So Darius adjusted. So when Johnson would fade left, he would either fade back, or he would jab and fade back, or he would jab fade back at an angle. Because sometimes you could see him get caught going back straight a little bit, but he already had he was freezing Johnson with his jab. So that was kind of interesting. Or if he would, Johnson would fade left, he needed a jab, Johnson would fade right, and then the, the rear uppercut would come from Darius. So Darius would really begin to make adjustments off that, um, off the movement of, of uh, Johnson. Plus, 
by the time that was really working, Johnson came out in the third with a lot of movement and then slowed after about the first minute. It was after that first minute, you really saw some of those adjustments come to life by Dariush. So let's see. Um, yeah, so there'll be other times where Dariush would jab and then circle out to his right, uh, which did a really good job. So, yeah, I mentioned Johnson didn't cage cut nearly as well this time. There was a lot of times, three, four, five exchanges, where Dariush and he exchange, and he's able to circle back and bring the fight to the center of the cage. Now, Johnson would still kind of apply some forward pressure, but it wasn't the kind of stifling pressure that you saw in that first and second round behind the two black lines. It was more like general pressure, but a guy like Dariush, who's got great cardio and good composure and you know great corner with Heifel Cordero, that's not going to be as effective as the kind of pressure he was applying in that first and second round. And, you know, easier said than done. Johnson did a phenomenal job, but you get tired and you know the guy can you know can make adjustments late, like I mentioned before, off the jab. So a really good job by him in that particular case. Um, and then also when he got backed up a little bit or the forward pressure was a little too linear from Johnson, you can go back and watch. That's when the majority of those step through knees he would throw would happen. Because uh, he, he was looking to wrap the head, but you can't just throw it from a distance. It's when the guy was coming forward. Because Johnson was doing a great job side to side, side to side. There were moments he would kind of step forward two, three times. When you hit that second, third step, that's when Dariush would launch into the step through knee. So I didn't score the fight for Dariush, but I certainly think in that third round he did a much better job. Um, let's see. Derek Brunson defeated Sam Alvey, Alvey, whatever, 219 of the first round via TKO via strikes. I don't know how much you want to say about this one. Probably not a whole lot. Um, I'll just say Brunson had a really good command of range. Um, you know, if your back is against the fence, there's so many problems with it. Number one, your your mobility is reduced. You can't really um, – number two, even if you get your hips behind you, your hips are now stuck and you're forward. Your weight is over you. You're off balance. There's just so many problems with being against the fence like that. Um, even when you have a clinch, like Ali was trying to hold him in the clinch, but Brunson was really good at – finding pockets of space he would lean his head in get his hips back to create something for a body shot or he would let himself get a little bit controlled up top but he would lower his level and then bang him out over the top staying in the clinch and when that didn't work he would press forward and fire an uppercut and then when alvi would step back he would lunge with the left and catch him so it was like all these different phases where at the end of the punch on top from the clinch inside from the clinch um, creating space manually inside the clinch, not just using what Alvi gave him. There are all kinds of ways for Brunson to land his punches. That was really the key for me here. You know, was it stopped a little bit early? Eh, maybe a little bit early, but the guy went face first to the mat. Alvi has a bit of a poker face when he gets hit. It's not like he does the, you know, the eye roll thing. He kind of looked like he was just grimacing a little bit and then kind of clumsily fell forward when he was rocked. And Brunson followed up. Maybe not enough to, Maybe not enough to call it, but... Um, certainly, um, he was doing quite poorly at that time, but to me, you know, his annual lesson there was, I think Kenny Florian noted it. Brunson took some risks. There's no doubt about it. Um, and he got clipped a couple times with Alvi's left hand and that could have been a bad thing, but more often than not, it didn't really matter where Alvi moved because he was stationary against that cage. Brunson just knew if I'm in this position, go here. If he tries to pull down, go here. If he tries, if I can yank up and create space, come here if he steps out throw there like he just knew you know from rehearsed and from instinct and from general perception what punches would land where and what spaces and was really really good about making sure that they connected uh in a very interesting fight let's see 
Amanda Nunez defeated Sarah McMahon via rear naked choke at 253 of the first round. This one was a little surprising, um, but then again, maybe not. So, okay, a lot happened here, but not not a whole lot at the same time. Um, I'll explain what that means. Let's see. So, Nunez fires a front kick with the right. It doesn't land all that great, but she's eliciting like a right-hand counter. She gets a jab, and then she's looking for the right-hand counter. Doesn't quite get it, but what happens is McMahon resets the angle. But she reset the angle because, because Noon said it. In other words, Noon throws the front kick, then steps out to her left. McMahon kind of follows her, but she follows her like this. So the second she steps into space, bip, there went the left hook. She ate it flush. It was kind of bizarre. She was she was looking for, I'm going to throw this. I want the right to come so then I can step and crush. Okay, fine. It doesn't come. She steps out. McMahon just turns into her. Boom. So, she, so that landed. Uh, I thought Nunes did a great job by avoiding the body lock takedown. There's a bit of a scramble there. I could be wrong. If you're a better wrestling aficionado than I am, and I'm sure many of you are, it looked to, you know, correct me, but it looked to me like the grip that she had was strong here. I don't mean that, but it was the placement. It was kind of around Nunez's ribs. Um, I've always been told if you're going to do the grip, you got to do it right around the back of the shoulder line or you got to do it right around the hips. If you do it kind of in the middle, it can be, you know, if you just think about it logically, right? Think about, think about side control on the ground. What am I trying to control with knee on belly? Say I got shoulder pressure here. I may, I may grab the back of your gi and fire my arm forward which crunches the head sideways, and I got my, my knee on your hip. What am I controlling? I'm controlling your head and your hip. So when you think about the body lock, what does the body lock need to be? It needs to be up on the shoulders, or it needs to be up or down by the waist. This is how I was told. If you know something better, let me know. But anyway, just logically thinking, if you have it around the ribs, they still have their hips to move. You know, if you couldn't hula hoop with them, but if they're – think about someone with a hula hoop. Their ribs might be kind of in place, but their hips – circle all around well if you can move your hips you can do a lot of things you can open them up and then find a space to to underhook which is what she eventually did she almost got tripped a couple of times big man i thought had a good, good couple angles you want you know getting perpendicular with her and then putting the leg behind her and tripping her but it was uh the placement just seemed kind of in the middle versus down or up so what eventually happens uh mcmahon does a mat return so she gets behind nunez and it's not a takedown where she like you know kind of pulls her to the mat and, and, then, and then tries to roll on top. Nunes stays moving, uh, and she hears her corner call for hips out. So when they're standing and there's like their, their, their hand fighting, rather than being here, she just kind of thrusts her hips forward and then circles out and stands around. You know who's the best at that is Jose Aldo. You go back and watch Jose Aldo in the uh, second, uh, McGregor, second Mendez fight. He does a phenomenal job when he's hand fighting. He gets his hips way out in front. He's not here, you know, bent over so that you have better control because you might feel a little bit safer here than if you're out here and you're kind of letting your balance go. But if you pop and then turn, you know, you just create the movement and or you create the space and then move. Create space and move. Create space and move, which she did quite well. And also good job listening to her corner. So here's what um, one of the problems was, and this is what set up the beginning of the end. You saw McMahon kind of, Kind of, I'm almost done. So you, see, you see McMahon almost fakes like a leg kick too far out, so she just turns around and, and refaces. You see this all the time in Thai boxing and sparring and MMA. You see it all the time. But you see when someone misses it or they're too far out or they're just kind of faking it or whatever the case may be, 
and they spin back around, what do they do? They hold a hand out, and they might also hold a hand up and raise a leg. Paul Felder is really good about this, right? If I'm going to, when I spin around, I want to turn around and I want to get my eyes on you as soon as possible, even before the rest of my body can follow, like an owl if I can, but you don't just turn around hands down. Go back and watch. She flips around her hands. I mean, like totally defenseless, totally defenseless. So she comes back around. There's no handout to protect her. Remember technical standup. How do you stand up hand and foot on the uh, hand and if my left hand is out, my left hand's on the ground. Or, excuse me. If my left hand is out, my left foot is on the ground. My right hand is on the ground, and I go back. But I've always got a hand out in front of me. Always. When you spin for that kick and you miss, you got to have the hand out. Or here, even. You can block up here, too. There's a lot of different varieties. She just spins, literally, with her hands by her waist. So what does Nunez do? She waits for her to come back around and pops her. And that's at the beginning of the end. She eventually takes the back. One quick note. She goes for the choke she can't quite get it so you see her have it here she takes her free hand and she pops she uses the palm of her hand here she kind of like a boss rooting she doesn't hit her in the face she hits she uses the palm of her hand to hit mcmahon's hand she pops it off and then uses that to like you know lend that bicep grip that really that does the that closes the show um but it was just that that was what said at the beginning of the end it was like mcmahon um I thought she had a decent game plan given her strengths. But when she spun for that, maybe no one's made her pay for that in sparring, you know, but she spun hands down. So Nunez was like, bink, easy pickings, man. Uh, and then last but certainly not least for this main card, this was a great fight. Uh, Ray Borg defeated Gian Gianni. Uh, or, I know he's Colombian. I cannot pronounce his name. Uh, Gian Herrera. Unanimous decision across the board, 30-27. And by the way, the rear naked choke on Amanda Nunes, or by Amanda Nunes, anyway, was at 253 of the first round. Um, this Ray Borg fight was great. So there was a lot that went on for uh, um, for grappling fans. If you're a fan out there, there's a lot that happened here. So Borg's, Borg did a lot of things well. I have to say that the most impressive thing, of course, was Borg. But the second most impressive thing was the guard retention by Herrera. Because that is extremely exhausting. Um, he did a good job of preventing side-to-side passes. He threatened as much as he could underneath. You know, you could tell there were some things where um, you didn't have a second or third gear. Or I should say he didn't have a fourth or fifth gear he could go to because he definitely had a second and a third. But, you know, for a UFC debut, I know he lost. and I know he's probably not feeling great about it. But I was very impressed with his guard retention, even when he got passed. Um, so, cause I'll explain, I'll go into it. So Borg tries a double unders pass. Double unders pass is, um, if, okay. So what's a triangle one hand in and one hand out, right? Um, a double unders pass is when you dive both hands in and you come out on top and you're on top of their hips and you suck their hips and you put their hips onto, onto yours basically. And then there's a lot of different varieties from there about what you can do, depending on what you want to do. But what most guys do and what Borg tried to do is you try and lean a shoulder while keeping them, you want to pin them on their shoulders because it's very uncomfortable, right? If their hips are off the mat. If their hips are on the ground, it's not going to work. If you have them off the mat and you're driving into their neck, you're driving into their shoulders, you're, you're leaning into that joker, okay? You can drive the sh- you can drive their knee into their nose, not like a punch, but like you can just close the space and then you shrug it off to the side and now you can, you know, you can do what Glover Teixeira does and then you can wrap the head. So 
Borg was putting him under pressure with this. Like his pressure was good. He was a little bit low, but he had picked him up and was, I mean, was, you know, he was driving him in. It was going to go for anybody less than, less than Herrera. Um, but Herrera does an incredible job. He reads it and does a really good job of, man, guard retention is a lot of just getting your space where it needs to be. Scoots his hips out just enough where he can get his left leg behind the shoulder and push a little bit and then sneaks in. He breaks the grip and then sneaks in his right foot and puts it on the left hip of Bork. This is very hard to do. If that grip is strong and they're driving, you know, um, it's, 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 it's a very difficult thing to do what he did to get just enough space on one side and then break it on the other and then reclaim the space. So a very good job by Herrera there. Um, so what, what was another thing that Herrera did? Okay. So maybe he got passed to half guard. He always did a good job of the, the hook. So if let's say, let's say that I have them between my legs, but they're kind of this way. They're kind of on this bot side. He did a good job of getting the free leg. I'm shaking my free leg here. And then using that as a butterfly hook constantly, constantly, constantly. Why? Because if you can underhook even either side, and you have that butterfly hook, you can lift them, you can raise them, you can lift and turn them, you can lift it as all with Danny Castillo in the uh, Jim Miller fight, you can lift and throw them over you, you can do all kinds of things. He was routinely, routinely getting that butterfly hook in on in half guard to create all kinds of space. If, it, it, in jiu-jitsu, you need space underneath. You want to be tight when you want to be tight, but if you're getting pressed on, you want to create space. He did a really good job of that. I thought Borg did a nice job, not just in this round, in the second and the third round, basically the entire fight. If he passed or got to half guard, he was wrapping your chin. He was wrapping your chin for a, for a guillotine. Why? Because even if you get lifted and turned, he can transition to a darse. Uh, even if you get to your base, he still got it and can make you go belly down. Count how many times that Herrera would lift him, turn him, get to his base, but would do so with having his chin wrapped and then would have to go back down all the time. It was just a way of never allowing Herrera to get the kind of space he needed to go and back up and reset the fight. It just kept him on Borg's terms. Even if it didn't finish him, it was a fight that, you know, Herrera was just trying to, just trying to, you know, stand up and he couldn't. It was crazy. Um, it was the leg lock battle where it was funny. Um, Borg was threatening with an inverted heel hook, kind of, kind of like Herrera was beneath him. He was on top and threatening with a heel hook. Okay, so why didn't it work? Well, I'm sure it hurt for a second. But the thing about a heel hook is you got to be in tight with the person. People think the heel hook is just your arms. It's not. It's also your legs pulling into them, pulling into you. So that, and it depends on what kind of grip you're using with your legs. But if you can, you if you have a right grip here, Everything is appropriate here. I've seen it done. You can just use your legs to tighten it, and I'm pulling my feet to my rear end. You can get a tap. I've seen it done. You can say, oh, that's not true. Yes, it is. If you this is right, I'm not talking about just torquing here, just holding it in place and then using your legs, you can get the tap if it's right. But when you're like this, you're holding someone's leg, what can they do? Well, they can do two things. They can kick or they can put their hands on the mat and then just scoot. Because you don't really have control over their leg. You're having a heel hook here. That's not that's not that's not control of the legs. The leg has to be controlled with your legs as well. Otherwise they can just move it around. So we can the heel hook just with him just pulls his leg. So fun for a second to look at, but it's not gonna work on anybody who does any good. round two. 
work those work those left big dives and dives roll double and get the arm walk. Uh, it was funny. Uh, so, funny. So, more so of the left dives were double, were double or rare, 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 but does it does it lay away? So, what is more it changes the angle, comes around the other side, so the right arm not doing the work. Uses it to reclaim the double, picks him up and drops him down. So, like, it was good that Herrera used his hand to pop it off, but he didn't use it to then throw in the other hand. He didn't use it to take a step out. He didn't use it to put his hips out. He just kind of popped it off and left his feet in place. Well, someone's just going to reset the angle and take the, the takedown, which is what they did. Uh, let's see. Herrera did a good job getting to his knees in between he and um, in between he and Borg to stop a couple of guillotine attempts. Um, Herrera kept uh, hunting for a right side Kimura, but uh, I didn't like the strategy. So how many times you see Herrera underneath? What was he doing? He was trying to get the Kimura on this side, right? So he'd be playing knee shield, he'd be playing half guard. He was constantly going for that for that Kimura. But when you go for that Kimura, think about it. If I have your hand here and I'm coming for it. I have all the space exposed. All the space is exposed here. Think about that. Especially if you're on your side a little bit, right? So what would what would Borg do? He would kind of like threaten to leave it out there. Uh, and almost allow his arm to be taken. And then use that to then drive into pass as he secured almost a head and arm triangle a bunch of times. So like that Kimura, Kimura is great, but Kimura is great like when you can do what Paul Harris does, where it's like side control, or you know you're reversing someone with a Kimura sweep or something like that. But like trying to get someone from half guard, you, I'm not saying you can't get it; you can definitely get it. But if you haven't gotten it the first two or three times, you might want to rethink that strategy a little bit. You know, especially like one of the keys to getting that is you gotta you gotta turn them into that arm and get them to plant their hand on the mat, because if they're putting their hand on the mat, they're putting their weight down on it. That's when you can then wrap it up. But if he, if you're just trying to get it as he's moving into you, he has all the kind of mobility. Plus, you're opening up a whole side of your body, so not not necessarily the best idea. Um, let's see. And of course, like I mentioned, the doubles underpass. Borg was timing the triangles, which event, which effectively serves at the same thing. If someone tries to throw a triangle on me here, I can wrap my hands. I have one hand in, but I can still, if I'm timing it right, I can still grab it, shuck it by. And then pass. And then lastly, I got to get out of here. Um, Borg had a nice, what I call shoulder knee pass from Herrera's, uh, Herrera's extended guard and moving in half. So he was like uh, on top. And what did he do? He dove his knee under one of the shoulders of Herrera, then took his other knee and pinned the hips and the other leg of Herrera to the ground. So Herrera's open like an L and then uses that to step out and get to half guard. That was a nice pass by Ray Borg. Um, Let's see. Oh, there was one sweep that Herrera gets. So Borg was to the side and was sitting his. So he's. So if I'm from Herrera, or excuse me, if I'm Borg, I'm on top in half guard, almost like a reverse half guard, not quite. Got the under. You know, got the under the head here, bodies here, and my top leg is caught. You know, so I want to either back step out or I want to slide through to get them out. What does Herrera do? Herrera gets an underhook across the body. And then blocks the other leg. Now that normally doesn't work because if you're sitting out on your hip, your bottom foot has to be toes live. You have to be on your on their toes, kind of pressing into him. You can't kind of be sit sitting there. You go back and watch Herrera's toes are not live. It's the the instep of his foot is on the mat. So when Herrera bucks into him, there's nothing to stop him. 
So you got to be, you know, when you're sitting like that, when you're sitting out on someone, you're let your, remember your top leg is trapped. Your bottom leg, you need to be on your toes. So if they buck into you, you can press back. If you can't, you're going to get turned and he gets turned. Um, yeah. And then of course, uh, the top, uh, the guillotine pressure from, uh, Borg was, um, you know, just constantly preventing any kind of return to his base. So a lot to like there. Um, not a great show, not a bad show. Fighter of the card, I'm going to give to Ray Borg. I would give to Glover share, but I just like Ray Borg's constant pressure on top. So I really appreciate that. A couple of results, and then I have to get out of here. I'm super late. Uh, Uriah Hall defeated Oluwale Bengboshe. I can't pronounce this guy's name. TKO punches at 232 of the first round. Chris Camozzi defeated Tom Watson via unanimous decision. Uh, Dustin Ortiz defeated Willie Gates via TKO at 258 of the third round. Frankie Signs defeated Sir Juan Kakai. Split decision, 28-29, 30-27, 30-27. Jonathan Wilson defeated Chris Dempsey at 50 seconds of the first round. Marlon Vera defeated Roman Salazar, triangle armbar combination at 2-12 of the second round. And then Scott Holtzman defeated Anthony Christodoulou, who I have no idea why he's in the UFC, at 2-40 of the third round. I give the card, I don't know, five or six, something like that. Not terrible, not not amazing. Had a couple cool moments. Uh, This will be up on MMA Fighting a little bit later today. I appreciate your patronage. I will see you later. Thank you so much. Until then, oh, what's next? There is no UFC fight next week. The next UFC event is going to be uh, UFC Fight Night Holloway versus Oliveira, August 23rd. Until then, there is nothing else out. Okay. Uh, I think there's a there's the Melvin Gillard at the end of the month on the 28th and Invicta in September again. So it's going to be a little bit quiet for just a little bit. Uh, but we'll still have a Monday morning analyst if it calls for one. Until next time, thank you so much for watching. Enjoy the fights.